Hello and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series explores the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. I am Dr. Marnie Peterson, and I've spent the last 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher, and I will be your host. Fungi are, are very adept at surviving. I mean, they're survivors. They're out here on the planet. They've been here for billions of years surviving. Around the world, the multidrug-resistant and pan-resistant fungus, Candida auris, has caused outbreaks in healthcare systems. While it's now highlighted by CDC as an urgent threat, only six years ago, there were no reports of resistant Candida auris strains that were able to spread easily between patients. Candida auris is an example of how quickly drug resistance can move around the globe. These infections are challenging to treat, with 5 to 10% of the colonized patients going on to develop invasive infections. This episode will cover how these outbreaks have impacted patients, healthcare systems, and continued efforts to better understand and slow the impact of this fungus. I'm Tom Chiller. I'm currently the chief of the Mycotic Diseases Branch at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Chiller. The, the focus of our topic today is antifungal resistant Candida auris. Why are we talking about this? What is, what is this infection and, and why is it taking up so much of your time these days? We know fungal organisms make up an entire kingdom of organisms and they're probably the most similar, if not the most similar to human beings. They, you know, they present a real challenge when it comes to both diagnosing them and treating them because of the similarities actually to our own bodies. They estimate that there could be three to five million species of fungi on the planet. Maybe only 120,000 of those are actually identified and only a couple hundred of them are human pathogens, but really only maybe 20 or 30 are the main human pathogens. And so it's a small amount of organisms that we sort of deal with, but as you can see, the potential is huge. So for us, a new emerging fungal infection or a fungal species, you know, on a yearly or even more common than that basis is something we expect. And so we see these new names and these new organisms pop up. I think what was really different about Candida auris and what is still different about Candida auris is it sort of like took the strengths from multiple types of fungi that we know about clinically, put them all together and became set up in healthcare systems and in countries. And I'll just give you an example. The most common fungi on the planet that cause human infections are the skin organisms, right? Things like athlete's foot, jock itch, you know, tinea, ringworm, we call it. These are common. One out of four of us gets these infections and, and they're very transmissible amongst different populations. They can go from animal to human, etc. There are organisms that we call the mucormycoses that are very deadly fungi that are very resistant to antifungal medicines and but they're very rare and they generally infect very sick people. And then finally, there are candida species. And these are common hospital associated infections that we get in our blood, but they come from our GI tract. So they're part of our normal microbiome. 
And, 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 and so they, they translocate out into our bloodstream when we have surgeries, when we're in ICUs, when we're on broad spectrum antibacterials. The reason I bring those sort of three things up is because to me, it's almost like Candida auris took the qualities of all three of those and emerged. And what are those qualities? Number one, it's highly drug resistant. It's, you know, it's, it's resistant to the three big classes that we use to treat invasive fungal infections. Secondly, it's very transmissible. So generally, candida, as I just mentioned, the bloodstream infections are more of an auto infection. We sort of infect ourselves with our own strains. In this case, this bug can infect cross person to person, or more likely it goes from person to environment back to person. So these sort of healthcare associated types of infections. So, and yet it's a candida species. And so it gets into our blood and causes a similar amount, what we, what we think mortality of around 30 to 40% that we see with the regular candidemias. The scientific community, as you're aware, in yourself, weren't always concerned about this organism. It really wasn't on your radar. It did become a significant medical threat. So just describing to us when and where did this organism emerge on the scene as a serious pathogen? It's a fascinating emergence, and it's not something we expected. When we first heard about this bug, it was an ear, it was associated, Candida auris, associated with ear, and it was described in a Japanese patient as an external type of infection. And so, yeah, it caught our eye because all these new fungal emerging infections do, but generally it was put into that place where, okay, notch, it's a, it's a, it's a new fungal species that was identified, move on. When it started getting reported as a as an invasive uh, organism and in blood, that caused us to have a second look. And then I think the final straw that broke the camel's back, as we say, was when we were talking to colleagues in the UK and London, and they were trying they were dealing with an outbreak of Candida auris, particularly in an, in, in a cardiac ICU, and they couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't stop the transmission to the point they had to shut down the ICU, get all the patients out and do a deep clean. And that sparked us to say, we've got to notify people about this infection. Can you just give us a, a date or a year of which this, this started to emerge? When did this UK outbreak occur? Yeah. So the UK outbreak started in 2015 and that's when we were talking to them in late 2015, 2016. CDC, we put out an alert in 2016. PAHO put out an alert around that same time in Venezuela and Colombia. So the timeline was that it was, it was emerging around a decade ago simultaneously in multiple continents. And so we're like, oh, this, there must be some vehicle vector, something taking this thing, sweeping it across the globe. But it turns out when we were able to work with partners and collect isolates and actually do whole genome sequencing and look at those isolates, it, it was surprising to us, honestly, because they clustered tightly, very, very tightly within those geographic regions, but they were vastly different from each other, suggesting there's no way in that short a period of time, movement could have happened by jumping on a plane. I mean, these were, these were emergences that were truly different, but almost simultaneous. So the initial strategy you took at CDC 20, 2015, 2016, yep. what was that? So the first step, obviously, to understand something 
in the U.S. is to find out if anyone's reporting it. So we went and we looked to see if anyone had any cases. And at the time, it was hard to identify. So the typical clinical algorithms and biochemicals used and then the typical machines where we plug in a, a, a culture and we and it spits out a result of what what is growing weren't detecting candida auris. They weren't in the algorithms. They were, but they were detecting other species. And so we went and asked, look for those species and then let us go and retest. And, and we went back to collections that had been happening for years in the U.S., big collections and just said, let's look at these other species and see if we could find it. And the interesting thing was, is we didn't find it. We found, I think the first case turned out that probably occurred in the U.S. I think it was 2015. Again, it was misidentified, so we went back and we identified it. But it really came into the U.S. sometime around 2015, 2016. And so it was just, I don't know, it was fortuitous. We were either, we were just right there at the beginning. There really, it really wasn't here already occurring. It was really starting to take off when we actually started to describe it. And then from 2016 on, it's been helping jurisdictions, states, hospitals, figure out ways to, you know, identify it rapidly and then try to control and contain it. This is one of those organisms because it is resistant to all three of the main drugs we use to treat it. We thought that a sort of control, contain, stomp out strategy was the best way to go. Plus it was early and we had very few infections noted. So between 2015 and 2018, that was your approach, 2019 perhaps, trying to to keep the cases low? Yes, I think up moving in to that, uh, you know, lovely 2020 year when the pandemic was sort of declared a pandemic and we all were scrambling in January, February, March to figure out what was going on with COVID. We were still in a very aggressive uh, way uh, and philosophy of approaching this organism. Find it, stomp it out, contain it, you know, make sure that, that the infection control practices are up to speed. The other thing about Candida auris that makes it challenging is because, again, it's a fungi. Fungi are, are very adept at surviving. I mean, they're survivors. They're out here on the planet. They've been here for billions of years surviving. And so one of the things we found out is you can't kill it with the typical disinfectant. And so that was another thing that we focus on with facilities that have it. Up your game for a while. You're going to, because this thing gets into the environment immediately, it goes from the skin right onto the hospital bed and in on equipment and on the floor, even windowsills, we find it all over. So yeah, one of the other avenues is not just understanding what if, if patients have it and how to try to isolate them and keep them in contact precautions, but it's like, how do we get it out of the environment? Because otherwise you're just in this vicious cycle. You know, we, we talk about superbugs and that meaning not a lot of options for treatment, multi-drug resistant organisms. Did you initially consider Canada Oris a superbug, or is it something that you consider it to be more now? Exactly. So superbug to me, and the reason we started calling this a superbug right away was because we already knew in 2015 and 16 when we were talking to these countries that Asia, certainly South Asia and South Africa had identified what we call pan-resistance. So it was resistant to these three classes of antifungals. So in my mind, that's a superbug. When you have a pan-resistant bug where you really have no other choices for treatment, that's to me the definition of a superbug. That's what I worry about. Is there any differences in the prevention and management? I think you were mentioning some of them, but that it being a multi-antifungal resistant pathogen versus some of the bacterial pathogens that individuals are maybe more aware of. 
yes, it's an organism that I like to say it's it's a it's a it's a fungus acting like a bacteria. So we've always been wary and worried about those organisms in hospitals like MRSA and resistant Klebsiella and Acidinidobacter that we know are common hospital acquired associated infections and that are that are highly resistant, hard to treat, but they're transmitted right within those environments. And generally fungi have not been, as I mentioned, that's not something we've worried about. Now you have a candida species, number one, that's highly drug resistant, or it can be. Number two, that's hard to get rid of. And number three, that's easily transmissible on surfaces and, you know, on skin and doesn't seem to colonize the GI tract, seems to be a skin colonizer. And so really it's got all these characteristics of a bacteria, of a hospital acquired bacteria. And so we really had to change sort of our dogma about how to deal with this fungal organism. And we started to really act like uh, it was a bacteria in a sense, except for a bacteria that was a lot harder to kill. Yeah. And so it made, it made us exactly step up our game. All right. We got to do susceptibility testing because we got to understand if these organisms have a certain resistance to different drugs. So we know which drug to treat it with. And then we needed to be looking at what is the future in the fungal, in the antifungal world, because I was worried and I still am that if the triple resistant, the pan resistant, the superbug, becomes the predominant species or becomes the the predominant strain of this species, right? We're going to be dealing with a really big challenge. Let's talk about the effect of the pandemic and and how that affected the the cases of of Candida auris. The CDC recently released a a 2022 special report, and there's a a component of it that that reports out data for Candida auris. So describe that for our listeners. Taking us back to the to the beginnings of this pandemic, where we obviously didn't know a lot about COVID nineteen, we didn't know a lot about the virus. We were learning about it as we were going. As patients, especially high risk patients, got sick, went into the healthcare setting, went into hospitals. You know, we were being very precautious as healthcare workers, and we were gowning and double gowning, and we were really making sure that we weren't going to get infected, so we could continue to take care of obviously these sick patients. In doing that, as you remember, we had problems with protective personal equipment, as we say PPE. There were shortages, shortages leading to using, you know, sort of the same PPE on multiple patients in multiple rooms. And that, unfortunately, is the exact opposite of what you want to do with these organisms like Candida auris and the bacterial infections that can spread from patient to patient and room to room because they can get on the gowns, as we've already mentioned, they can get on the the, the equipment. And if you're going from room to room, you are then potentially spreading those organisms to the next patient you take care of. You know, they had to do this at the time. Um, We didn't have the PPE. As we began to have better supplies, we could go back. But unfortunately, a lot of that spread had happened. And so what we ended up seeing was an increase in um, organisms that were spread by contact. The other sort of change that happened, which is unfortunate, is that most of the Candida auris clinical cases that we've been seeing in the U.S. up until the pandemic were really in long-term acute care facilities. And these are there are facilities where patients who are ventilated but stable can go and can receive long-term care. And, and we were really seeing a problem with these multidrug-resistant organisms in these long-term acute care 
hospitals or facilities or these skilled nursing facilities, along comes the pandemic, sort of puts, you know, screws all that infection control practice up for a number of months. And also, the at-risk patients for COVID are in these long-term care facilities. And so they then begin to start being transferred into hospitals, hospitals that aren't doing as good a job as infection control as they had been just due to supplies and everything. And you get a little bit of a perfect storm for these multidrug resistant organisms to spread. And so that, that's been a bit of a shift for us. And so over the last couple of years now, we're also focusing on hospital prevention and CORS uh, control and not just in these long-term care facilities. Yeah, do you have a gauge for percentage of individuals that may be colonized with the organism, but they're completely asymptomatic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you, I mean, we, we have done now a number, I mean, with states and with, uh, and with other providers, a number of these point prevalence surveys, we call them. So you go into a facility and you swab everybody, and then you get a point prevalence. And those can go from zero, or thankfully there's nobody, to 90% of the facility is colonized. And so it just depends on when you catch it and, you know, how long it's been, it's been in the facility and, and, and it been unnoticed and able to spread. Let's talk about your role at the CDC as it pertains to this organism. What are, what are some of the efforts that you're particularly focused on or your team, your teams are focused on? The most important activities that we've done is, you know, even back five, six years ago, we didn't have good identification of this organism. I think we've dramatically improved that across states, clinical labs. The sequencing we're doing when we can more to sort of track the spread of where these different strains are coming from. We know that there are five major strains around the globe, none of which have originated in the U.S., and we have four of those in the U.S., and we can then watch sort of how they move so identifying it was our first step. Once we've identified it, we worked on also some rapid identification methods, PCR, so that we could be swabbing our patients, right? Because we could swab in culture, but as we know, culture always takes a few days. We needed rapid PCR testing. We helped develop that. We pushed that out to the antimicrobial resistance laboratory network. They're all testing for Canada Oris now. They can also do susceptibility testing because, again, that's such an important tool for the clinician to know what drug to use and to know what's resistant. And then the idea is how do we push screening down to the local level so that if you're in a county that is having a problem in their long-term care facilities with Canada Oris, that they can run those tests rapidly because ultimately I think we're moving toward some sort of screening mechanism so that you can identify patients as they come into a facility. Oh, they're CORS. I know I need to put them in contact isolation. And I think the one thing we're missing, understanding how to really decolonize someone. So if you have it on your skin and you're carrying it, how do we actually put the level down to the point where they're no longer transmitting it? And this is still an active area of research for us. One of the things you mentioned at the, at the outset was categorizing it as a superbug because of the pan resistance, resistance to all the major classes of antifungals. Are you, are you concerned? Uh, others may be thinking, well, so what happens when there isn't any, anything to treat it? Um, is, there, is there research being done so that they'll, be have, they'll have more options? Are you helping to facilitate that and raising awareness about that need? I think the good news there is for the first time in decades, we've got a couple new antifungals close. And one I think was just recently approved 
and and we got on them five six years ago to test we offered we'll test your compound against this organism and so we do know there are some other drugs out there that work against these pan resistant strains so that's some good news they're not all approved yet which is the bad news but they're there and they're close they're in clinical trials they're in phase two phase three so i do think we'll have a couple um, potential uh, other drugs to use what keeps you up at night what do you worry most about is that one of them, or is there even something beyond that? In the Canada Oris world, unquestionably, it's these pan-resistant strains taking off. Yeah. It's this that that to me is the superbug that we're talking yeah. about when we talk about superbugs in, in Canada. There are other things that keep me up as well, or get me thinking, because as I mentioned, we're in the fungal world. Don't be surprised that you know when things happen. And I, I heard someone the other day say, you know, we were in the bacterial era. Now we're in this sort of the viral era. Is the future going to be the fungal era? And if we look at some, some unfortunate things that are happening with fungal infections in animals, you might have heard of the white nose syndrome in bats. This is a fungus that is killing bats. There's also the chytrid fungus. It killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of frogs. And, and some species are now extinct because of a fungal infection. So, we're watching what it can do in the animal population. We know that there are millions of species out there that, you know, that have the potential maybe to adapt and become human pathogens. And, you know, with a lot of the environmental changes that are happening, new ones are going to come out because they're going to outcompete due to these changes, other organisms. And I think what, what freaks me out and what keeps me up is honestly, thinking about how, how these fungi are affecting these bats and frogs and these, they're going extinct. And what is it gonna, what's the fungus that's gonna try to do that to us gonna look like? I'm Andrew Jacobs and I'm a health and science reporter at the New York Times. And I focus uh, particularly on antimicrobial resistance. So I want to talk, I want to take us back to 2019 is where we can start our discussion today. You and your colleague did some uh, investigational reporting. Uh, Matt Richtel was your colleague at the New York Times. You wrote an article titled Mysterious Infection Spanning the Globe in a Climate of Secrecy. And I know this is 2022, but I think it's important to start back at 2019 when some of this, we're talking about Canada Oris and this infection was in the background emerging what, what prompted you to mm-hmm. want to write this story? Well, at the time, um, most people had never heard of Candida auris, and it was sort of making a beachhead in the U.S. It would have been identified, I think, in just three states, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. And there weren't a lot of cases, but I think what was pretty notable about this particular fungus is that it was resistant to many of the drugs out there that treat yeast infections. And it was particularly deadly for older people, people in nursing homes, people with compromised immune systems. I think the CDC said that half of patients who got Canada Oris, you know, had died within 90 days. So it was a particularly worrisome kind of bug. But I think what made it especially interesting for us is that the secrecy that was kind of surrounding it 
you know, normally doctors, hospitals, you know, they want to talk about a public health threat because they want to get the word out. But in this case, it seems that they did, doctors and hospitals didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to sort of be associated with this particular pathogen because it's scary and it's hard to eradicate. And as we all know, health facilities don't want to be kind of, you know, uh, negatively associated with something like this. So the secrecy is really kind of what initially prompted us to go big on it because we felt like there needed to be the kind of um, disinfectant, as it were, of, of daylight. So we could really know the full scope of this threat. So as you started digging into this, uh, you were able to get connected to some of the families where Candidors had infected one of their family members. I spent quite a bit of time, well, I should say, standing outside a nursing home in Brooklyn. The facility was not interested in talking um, to us about what was at the time, according to family members we spoke to, you know, of an outbreak really of, of Candidors among those patients. And so I basically stood outside, me and another reporter taking turns, trying to find family members to talk to about. Uh, the relatives inside and what was going on with this Candidoris. So I think families were afraid, of course, and confused and didn't really understand what was happening. And also they were frustrated because I think they felt like they weren't getting adequate response from employees uh, and administrators at that particular facility, but I think it's the same thing we saw uh, in other nursing homes and long-term care facilities around the country, that people weren't really being given the full story of what was happening. And uh, that's a reflection, I think, of the secrecy and the fear surrounding Candidoris. At the time, what were some of the challenges the facilities were facing regarding this bug, and how were they dealing with them? I think part of the challenge is a general a, a lack of, of awareness among healthcare workers, and even, you know, hospital and nursing home administrators. I mean, it was not that well understood. I mean, you know, remember this thing was only identified, first identified in 2009. I think they just didn't really have the information and uh, perhaps the diagnostics. You know, it's gotten a little bit better, but I think overall, this is a, this is a fungus that doesn't really hasn't really gotten a lot of traction in, in terms of public awareness. And I think most people you ask on the street would sort of, their eyes would glaze over if you said Candidoris. Just focusing a little bit about the families and, and, the, and the, their family members, how ill were they? Were they, were they getting appropriate treatment? Do you recall? Yeah, the, um, there was a patient who we sort of profiled in our article she was at this uh, long-term care facility in Brooklyn. I she had a really th- impressive uh, number of of things she was uh, fighting against. She was all kind, you know. She had um, diabetes. She had you know kidney failure. She had all kinds of problems she was battling. So Candida Oris was just one more thing that was sort of attacking her body. She was mostly unconscious. Most of the time, her uh, her husband was pretty attentive, spent a lot of time with her, and he was frustrated. He he basically brought us into the 
to her bedside as his guest, which was with his right was his right to do, which is how we eventually got in um, to that particular nursing home as his guest, and then we were able to do some more reporting. But I think that the the, the main takeaway was to me was that most of the people that were sick with this this fungus were already severely immunocompromised. They were sick. They often uh, had, um, you know, invasive uh, procedures that, you know, they were either on a a feeding tube or they, um, a catheter, IV lines. uh, And these are are the kind of primary um, kind of routes of transmission or or I should say infection, you know, um, for candida or to get to the bloodstream. So I think that's the commonality here is, and, and I think it's also important for listeners to, you know, if, if there's any comfort in, in listening to this podcast to know that Candida Auris is not sort of going to be cutting a wide swath through healthy populations. Um, it colonizes, a lot of us probably have it on our skin. It's not uncommon to find it on the skin of, of patients in hospitals. It's the problem is when, uh, it gets uh, into your bloodstream and you don't have the immune immunity to kind of fight it off. Seahorse is also extremely, extremely resilient in the environment. Is that a challenge you saw facilities grappling with as well? Yeah, no, that's the other thing that was really um, striking about Seahorse uh, is that it's really hard to get rid of it, uh, not just from a person, but from uh, surfaces in a hospital, a, a previous story we had done, a, a sort of introducing, I guess, our readers to, to Candida Auris was focused on a hospital in Brooklyn, and they had had a patient uh, with SCRS that uh, died. He was in a room, I think it was 90 days, and finally had died. He came from a nursing home. I, I should also point out that a lot of these people are coming from nursing homes to hospitals, and they bring it with them. So it's not that hospitals are spreading. It's often that it's the, there's so much churn of people going from nursing homes back to hospitals, nursing homes back to hospitals, that this is how often how it spreads. But anyway, we, we talked uh, to one of the, um, the doctors there who described how after this patient died, they had um, the cleaning crew, you know, their infection control people come in and do their usual scrubbing, did a test, still came back positive, went in again, did a, a more thorough cleaning, which included, you know, tearing out the ceiling tiles, uh, I think, you know, some of the drapery or the, the, the shades were taken out. I mean, they really just sort of, I don't want to say gutted the room, but they, they took out anything that could they could clean uh, again and then tested. And I think it's called a settle. Um, it's sort of a dish that's sort of where pathogens will settle and then grow as like a Petri dish. And the only thing that grew was sea oris. Everything else, you know, <laughs> had basically been eradicated. So it's a really tenacious bug. And uh, the same thing uh, has happened in hospitals around the world, a very uh, kind of uh, preeminent um, hospital in in London had the same thing happen where they had to sort of tear out the innards of rooms to get rid of it. Uh, Spain had a similar situation. So that's, I think, the scary thing for a lot of uh, hospital administrators is that once this thing gets into your hospital, it's really hard to eradicate Fast forwarding to 2022, we've experienced a global pandemic that has really accelerated this issue. The CDC has published a report on the COVID impact on antimicrobial resistance, which includes a section on Candida auris. 
One of the experts in this report, Dr. Tom Chiller, we actually speak with in this episode. Back in 2019, what sorts of conversations were you able to have with public health officials around this emerging organism? What was the strategy on addressing the issue? Yeah, I mean, they were frustrated. Um, uh, Dr. Triller was part of one of our early stories, um, and he was an important kind of um, in terms of sounding the alarm. And New York state officials actually eventually kind of came around and, and, and started being more aggressive. And then they were disclosing locations where infections took place. And I think that might have been one of the impacts of our reporting, I would like to think, but, you know, drawing more attention to it. But, you know, I do notice that I just was checking the CDC's map just earlier, and it's now, or the cases reported in 15 states, at least 15 states. Um, and I noticed there was 600 cases reported in Nevada uh, recently. But I think, I think what you were saying earlier about the pandemic, you know, it's hard to know exactly how the pandemic has aided and abetted the spread of uh, CRS. But I, from some reporting I did uh, during the pandemic, uh, the sense was that it was really having a holiday uh, in terms of spreading because, like you say, infection control was stretched then. Early on, health workers didn't have proper PPE. Everything went, you know, everything went out the window in terms of precaution. People, you know, facilities were just trying to survive this this chaos. So, you know, Canada Orses was not at the top of the list of people worried about. They were worried about this this virus uh, that causes COVID nineteen. So, I think I don't know if our healthcare system has fully recovered in terms of infection control, but. I know from my conversations with, with, with doctors and hospitals that they took a real hit because, you know, the whole staffing shortage trickled down to every department. And, and so infection control departments, you know, lost staff and lost funding. And um, so that's really not good. And it's not only a global problem for humans, but a One Health issue. Can you describe a bit of your reporting in that area? I think I think C. Oris in some ways is an important kind of warning to mankind about our approach to antimicrobial drugs and the overuse, the real rampant overuse of these of these drugs um, in both humans, uh, but also in animals and agriculture. And I think the fungicides that we depend on, um, you know, for our food for mass, you know, sort of industrial scale agriculture, this is having a real impact on these drugs and, and when they work in humans, because the more you use these drugs, the more likely they are to become ineffective over time as these bugs become resistant to the, the sort of punch that these drugs deliver. I think it's a really important moment. Um, and this WHO has tried to sort of signal this with that report and their, their, their list of most worrisome threats. I think we just have to really uh, return to basics here and um, talk about prescribing, talk about, is it okay for us to, uh, you know, have blemished fruit from time to time? Does it have to be perfect? There's, you know, there's just all kinds of really important um, issues that need to be kind of grappled with that are really tough. But I think, it's 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 really uh, urgent because I think most people don't appreciate how important an antimicrobial drug is <clears throat> to human kind of health. And if we don't have if these drugs aren't 
working, we're in trouble. And they already aren't working for a lot of people. We've talked a bit about secrecy. So I want to switch over to awareness. What are some of the conversations we should be having around this topic? How can we do that more effectively? Um, The problem with public awareness about antimicrobial resistance is that people don't realize that when their grandfather or their wife who has cancer and has been battling cancer for years dies of a a really stubborn lung infection, for example, pneumonia, that the, the death certificate will say uh, cause of death is cancer. And the doctor may not even fully explain that what killed their loved one was a drug-resistant infection. So what that that what effect that has is it sort of hides this threat in a way. You know, that's a really something that, you know, we have to find a way to change and sort of people understand that actually, yeah, cancer's a, a, a really dangerous um, and worrisome threat. But Actually, these drug-resistant infections are, you know, just as troubling. And I think they need to get a little more um, love, as it were, from uh, doctors and administrators when, when someone does die to make it clear what actually killed them. It's a conversation that we need to have. And I think we are beginning to have it. I think I think there's more and more awareness. I think the problem is words like antimicrobial resistance it makes people's eyes glaze over. What does that even mean? Even antibiotic resistance, what does that mean? How do you explain how a drug, the more you use it, the less effective it becomes over time? You know, it's all very complicated. Maybe we need a better, better language, better words to sort of convey it. But it's going to be a sort of a long-term menace Uh, in society. And I think we have to figure out a way to kind of grab it by the horns. Hi, I'm Bavarth Shukla. I'm uh, the medical director for infection control here at the University of Miami Health System. And I'm an uh, adult infectious diseases physician by training. We're we're here today to talk about a multi-drug resistant organism called Candida auris. And as a clinician, what makes this organism unique to you and why why are you concerned about it? So I think the most unique thing about this organism is that it's kind of come onto the scene independently in multiple parts of the world. Um, and that's, that's something we really haven't seen before. I mean, I think we've certainly seen multi-drug resistance emerge in different bacterial species. Um, but to see an organism that's sort of already capable of uh, resistance and present in the environment in multiple parts of the world seemingly and then just arrive in the setting of the healthcare world uh, is, is sort of unique about this pathogen. I think in terms of other aspects of it, there's a lot of similarities with uh, resistant bacterial organisms, uh, obviously in terms of the capacity for it to be resistant to antifungal drugs, but also its ability to colonize the hospital and healthcare environments such as shared devices, uh, bed rails, uh, etc. So I think from that perspective, it's it's similar to what we see with resistant bacterial organisms, but the fact that it sort of emerged uh, in multiple parts of the world independently, uh, seemingly from the environment, that's uh, quite a unique aspect of the uh, of the organism. And as a clinician, um, infectious diseases specialist, what would clue you in or make you have the concern that a patient might have a candida or infection? I mean, how does that 
come across as part of your differential. We do know some risk factors for for patients to get colonized with this organism, meaning that it you know becomes a part of their skin or can be found on their skin or in their gut or in other parts of their body, and then that then translates into a risk for it becoming uh, a cause of an infection. So if you have a patient who is colonized, which I think that's sort of the bigger challenge, recognizing who's colonized, and they have developed an infection that's uh, that you're concerned for, then that's where you would kind of think, well, maybe I should be concerned for Candidorus. And much the same way as you might think of a patient being colonized with MRSA and then developing a clinical infection, then you may have on your differential that this you know infection could be from MRSA. But I think the challenge here really is that the laboratories, most clinical laboratories are still transitioning and trying to be able to recognize this organism more quickly. And so another sort of uh, hint that you can get is if the lab is taking some time to figure out what the organism is, that may be your first clue. If they're able to tell you it's a yeast, but they can't figure out which what species it is, that may be a hint that um, this could be a Candidorus infection. You mentioned the similarity with MRSA, and often with MRSA, patients may be tested to see if they're colonized or not, whether it's prior to surgery or entering a ward at the hospital. Are you yet at the point where you you want individual you want to know up front if someone may be colonized with candida or is that something that maybe is for the future? No, I think a lot of places in the country are already doing that very actively. Um, the states that have sort of the most experience, I think, uh, in the last few years with this organism is New York, Illinois. California, and I think Florida, uh, where I practice, is sort of the most recent addition to that. In in those areas where there are patients that are known to be colonized uh, and have a lot of access to healthcare by way of their illness, those are sort of the the hospitals that work with those patients are the ones that tend to do uh, screening for colonization, kind of like you mentioned for MRSA. So, for example, we've been doing that uh, at our institution, and uh, several other hospitals in the area have been doing that ever since the organism has been known to be uh, present in in this area. And it works very similarly to MRSA in the sense that it allows you to identify the patient who's colonized, place them in the right type of isolation or in the right ward, depending on the facility, and try to prevent it from transmitting to other patients or other areas of the hospital. I'll tell you, my biggest challenge, I think, is when this organism, which if you look at the map in the CDC every year, there's more states that have had it. When it's new to your area, it terrifies everybody because if you look at the CDC website, it makes it seem like, you know, it's an invasive disease and it's terrible and, you know, how you couldn't, you shouldn't allow it into your facility. And um, the reality is the people who get sick are the ones who already are, as I mentioned, who are already vulnerable, I should say. So just because you've you've read that on the CDC, you, you don't sort of have that perspective. So actually, when we go to the nursing homes and long-term care to try and teach them about this, it's sort of the opposite message, which is your goal here is not to worry that everyone's going to die from this. Your goal is really just to make sure everyone's put on the right isolation. You prevent transmission just like you would from MRSA or CRE or C. diff or whatever. And that message sort of gets lost in translation from what they read online. And so I think... Yes, it is a scary, invasive, resistant disease, but that doesn't mean everyone that has colonization with it is going to get it. So um, I think that's there's a difference between colonization and infection. What are some of the strategies you and your clinic have used to try to prevent the spread of colonization and infection? You know, there's a lot of moving pieces in a hospital in general, but I think in order to, to really control 
this organism is spreading, you, you need all hands on deck. So I do, I mean, leadership from the hospital, uh, leadership from nursing, leadership from your clinical teams, uh, leadership from, uh, from, from the cleaning staff, your environmental services staff, and then obviously the antimicrobial stewardship. I think you have to kind of bring everyone together and discuss a strategy that's going to work. Um, and it really, if everyone is not on board, there's, there's, it just takes, you know, an overlooked cleaning of a shared device for the organism to spread. And so, you know, everyone really needs to know what the strategy is going to be. And, and there's a multitude of strategies that are really based on knowing what we know so far about how the organism spread. The strategies include using the right disinfectant, not just the type of disinfectant, but the amount of time that it's used, the way that it's used, as well as sharing equipment or cohorting equipment only to be used with patients who are colonized. And then really monitoring if those strategies are working is also important. In other words, doing random testing of the environment and making sure that the surfaces are clean. And there's you know several techniques we can use to, to do that. And then also following up with education and feedback on the education with new staff as they come on so that you know the lack of knowledge isn't the, the cause of a lapse in, in, in cleaning or disinfecting. Um, and then, of course, educating the providers on antimicrobial stewardship and making sure that the providers who care for these patients are using, using antimicrobials judiciously is also um, just as important. Let's talk about the patients. Which individuals are, do you feel are at highest risk? for this infection that carries quite a significant morbidity mortality rate. Sure. So I think uh, the, the patients at most risk that we know, that, I mean, there are data on this, uh, not from our site, but from, you know, from others that have had more experience, specifically patients who are on a ventilator or have a tracheostomy or have some sort of manipulation of the airway that's required for their care. I think those patients are high risk. There's also some data suggesting that other devices, catheters, et cetera, that are chronically in place uh, can may also be of risk in addition to, you know, those are the type of patients that are also usually getting antibiotics for their care. And so it's kind of a combined, I think the risk is, is multifactorial, but those are sort of the patients where we, we have the most concern for. And, and actually recommendations from the CDC in terms of screening for patients for this is based on the, some of those same variables. I, I want to talk about some of the challenges you face in treating these patients and what makes it complicated? What's what's difficult for you as a clinician caring for an individual with this type of infection? So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's very different about this organism is that sometimes difficult to understand how much it's contributing to the patient's illness. So, in other words, oftentimes we see this organism causing a true infection, meaning, you know, in the bloodstream or, or somewhere in, in sterile body spaces. Uh, in patients who are already ill, they're critically ill, they're already on antibiotics, or they may be on uh, medications to help maintain their blood pressure, etc. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes in these patients that we see true infections. And sometimes it's difficult to know whether that infection is what's driving the patient's illness or the plethora of other things that are going on with them in that critical uh, setting that may be, may be driving that. And I think, you know, we certainly are working on collecting data to try and understand that a little bit better. And I, I think that that's one area of, of sort of where we need to collect more research and understanding uh, in order to understand the the contribution of the organism to the patient's overall illness. 
Uh, what we have been seeing here has been primarily a clade where the uh, susceptibility to econocandins is pretty good. So we've had very good success in treating the uh, infections that we've seen here for the most part. Uh, but I do know that in other parts of the world, there have been um, cases where all three classes, major classes of uh, antifungals that we would consider azoles, uh, echinocandins, and amphotericin have been reported as being resistant. So I think that's, we kind of see the, the range depending on, you know, which, which part of the country and which, what the genomics of the organism look like. And what else is going on with the patient uh, that all can play into how well they end up doing. I think the other thing that we've seen is conversely the opposite, which is patients who are critically ill, the organism grows from the bloodstream, but then a catheter is removed or nothing is done or you're not even sure the organism is this organism because the lab is tr still trying to figure that out and uh, they may be on a, a standard antifungal and then the next blood culture is negative. Uh, and so sometimes we've seen the organism sort of clear really quickly without a whole lot of intervention. And so it's unclear from that perspective whether the organism is really just r really good at colonizing the skin and the catheters to the point that it's difficult to get a clean blood culture uh, or if it's truly causing the patient uh, an infection in the bloodstream. So I think it's we have a lot to learn. We really don't know when we can call something a uh, contaminant in this case. But, uh, you know, I've had my uh, critical care colleagues call me in some of these scenarios and say, are you sure this was actually growing uh, in the lab? Because the patient is doing great. They're, you know, they're off the ventilator now when we're starting to walk them. And there doesn't seem to be anything um, bad going on from, from them clinically. So it's difficult right now based on what we know to say how severe this particular organism is in terms of um, illness severity. What keeps you up at night or what is something you're thinking about that you're concerned about as it pertains to this organism? I think there's two things. I think, you know, one of them is we really need, I think, unlike, I think it's actually in some ways similar to COVID, we really need a sort of unified um approach to addressing this in the community. Uh, that's something that really keeps me up at night. And what I mean by that is we tend to be very siloed when we're doing hospital epidemiology and what's going on in our health system, while our health departments tend to focus more on what's going on in the community. But I think this organism goes back and forth because our patients uh, may go from here to a nursing home, to a long-term care, to a rehab. I mean, depending on whatever their, their care needs are, they may transgress through multiple different resources for health in the community. So I think it's also very important to create an organized uh, approach to surveillance of this with your health department. I think that that's very important. And I, obviously, some health departments are more better resource than others. Uh, and so early uh, approaching your health department early about the matter, I think is very important. And then creating a targeted education uh, approach, not just for the community, but also for uh, health leaders in, you know, the community facilities, long-term care, nursing home, um, ventilator facilities, etc., you know, being a resource to those areas because of all the things I just described to you in terms of preventing transmission in a, you know, uh, well-staffed hospital environment uh, might be, you know, twice as challenging uh, in a facility that may not have adequate staffing or, or resources. Infection prevention is definitely a team sport. What does leadership and coordination look like for you and your team? I think one of the things that has been helpful for us, and I think that's something for 
in terms of strategizing and thinking from a leadership perspective is having a unified group uh, in infection control. Uh, we have a number of infection preventionists uh, across the health system, but we have a single staff meeting. You know, we meet regularly. We're all aligned on all the policies. I think that's very important, uh, along with, you know, the same for antimicrobial stewardship. Um, because these type of problems are not ones where, you know, one expert is going to be able to guide, you know, solutions. I think you need a large group of, of minds to, to work on this problem together. And also not just within your institution, but as I mentioned, in your local health department or your state health department and, you know, in other states even. So I think it's, it's the bigger the mind, the, the group of minds coming together, I think the better the solutions we can come up with. What actions can we all take to reduce the risk of these drug-resistant infections? You know, it's as easy as when you go in to see your doctor, you have a, a cough and you feel lousy, and your doctor says, here, just, just here's a prescription, go home. And you, you should ask, what is this prescription? If it's an antibiotic, you should say, why are you giving me an antibiotic? You don't even know whether I have a, a cold, which is a virus, or I have an, a bacterial infection. You know, up to half of all antibiotic prescriptions are given in error or are not warranted. The most important thing everyone can do is be aware, listen to these kind of podcasts and understand how these organisms are out there, where the risks are, and, you know, get physicians and healthcare providers to, you know, recognize that they exist. So, you know, come in asking questions, do I have a fungal infection or does my relative have a fungal infection who's in the ICU? Ask the questions, get healthcare providers thinking about fungus. I think that that antimicrobial stewardship is uh, is a everyone game. I don't think it's for ID doctors and pharmacists. Uh, I think everyone should really think uh, when they're prescribing antibiotic. Do I really need this? You know, is there an indication for this? And I think it's a very appropriate thing to ask your clinician. You know, you're recommending this. Do you, you know what is the rationale? So I understand I'm taking it for the right reason. You've been listening to Superbugs and You a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Elise Holmes, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.